The text this morning is in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. And as you go there, a couple things I want to share. You know, as I was preparing this study, I ran across, you know, I, I go to the internet, I don't know why, seeking all the world's wisdom. And I find interesting things there. There's a test called the GCSE. It's a qualification test in England given to 16, 15 to 16 year olds to mark their graduation to stage four or, or from stage four in their school system. And I found these answers from actual GCSE tests, and I thought they were interesting. First one, these are on history apparently, and it's that ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies, and they all wrote in hydraulics. They lived in the Sarah Desert, and they traveled by Camelot. Another one, the Bible is full of interesting characters. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree, And one of their children, Cain, asked, am I my brother's son? (laughs) Another, Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. That's interesting. (laughs) Moses went up on Mount Sinai, rough trip, to get the Ten Commandments. He died before ever reaching Canada. (laughs) Well, that's true. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> Rather painful. Now, I know none of us would answer any of those questions that way, but our knowledge of the Old Testament is, as Christians, is paramount. And it's important for us to understand the Old Testament, because if we don't understand the Old Testament, the New Testament, we miss so much of the importance and really the meaning. And so... Our text is from the Old Testament this morning, and I want to run through a couple of ground rules, some things I found helpful as I study the Old Testament. First, some thoughts from the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things... John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. Of course, Jesus speaking of himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Clearly, the writer of the Hebrews, Paul, <clears throat> is trying to say that rock that Moses struck is a type of Christ. So we have this picture. He goes on, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples. Now, all these things happen to them as examples, and they're written for our admonition. We have shadow, we have type, we have example, we have warning, admonition. So as we look at the Old Testament, I think it's important for us to look at it more than one level. First, we have to look at the actual events. They're historical events, they're true, they happened, and they're recorded the way God wants us to remember them. There are important items there that need to be um, understood and known. 
God says and does, what he says and does and, and why. And there's another level we look at these, and that's to take a step back and take a kind of a bigger picture um, view. Look for uh, patterns and themes. And there's another level we can look at for types, for example, and, uh, for examples and, and parallels. So first we read that it's a historical place. It is the continuation of Deuteronomy, which is at the same time both a continuation and a completion. You know, Deuteronomy is the, you know, these promises are made and the fulfillment, you know, comes as Joshua steps out in faith and begins the fulfillment of that. It's a continuation of the history and the actions and the deliverance of the Jews to the promised land that God had always intended for them. It's the continuation, the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, as we read in our scripture reading. In addition to this, and on a more figurative level, between this book and the five books of Moses, there's an interesting analogy. Follow with me for a minute. There's, a, there's Moses, the lawgiver, and he sets down the law, the, the precepts, how to live a godly life. He leads the people. He describes worship and character. And at the end, he dies. And the book of Joshua is the fulfilling or the fruition, uh, the continuation of the promises made uh, in the Pentateuch. And there's a parallel in the New Testament. We have four Gospels. The four Gospels have an author of a new covenant, a new lawgiver, and a new commandment given. And then the author of that covenant dies. He's resurrected, so the parallel is not completely uh, identical. I do find it a little curious, though, that Moses is resurrected in a sense because he appears on the, the Transfiguration. In the book of Acts, then, is the acting out of these principles. It's the moving into the church age, the acting out on the things that Jesus taught. And so the Pentateuch bears relationship to the Gospels, the book of Joshua, to the book of Acts. We might carry this a little further. Jesus and his 12 disciples from whom the church is birthed as a Jewish nation and the 12 tribes sprang from the 12 sons of Jacob. Christ uniting in his person the characteristics of Moses and Aaron from the Old Testament, the lawgiver and the high priest. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the, the Passover, in place of the Passover lamb, both being intended to commemorate the conversion from death to life the sacrifice of a lamb for a covering of sin. And then you have the name Joshua, the Hebrew version of the Greek, Jesus. Even the names are linked. And so we have this linked in type and form, the Old Testament to New Testament, Pentateuch to the, the Gospels, the book of Joshua to the book of Acts. And so as that thought, as, as a foundation, let's begin, Joshua Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. After the death of Moses. Think about Moses, the lawgiver, the leader of the nation of millions of Jews. He's the deliverer. He's performed miracles. He's spoken face to face with God. Truly one of the most fascinating people 
in the history of the world. Even his birth is an act of faith. His mother puts him in a basket and sends him down river in faith. And now he is dead. The Israelites uh, mourned Moses 30 days. Every day they woke up crying and they went to bed sad for 30 days. They had lost this key figure because he was more than just a man or a leader. He was an intermediary between God and man. Everything that they knew about God came through Moses. No one in history had been like him. And they had been dependent on him. And they relied on him. And now he's dead. And it says, the servant of the Lord. And and, and isn't that a wonderful description? Wouldn't that be great to have at your memorial? Servant of the Lord. Moses was a servant of the Lord. Moses had been brought up in Pharaoh's house, trained as one of Pharaoh's own, blew that, ended up on the backside of the desert, herding sheep. I don't know how far you could fall, but that's probably as far as you can go. And when he was 80 years old, God said, now he's finally ready. Now he's finally useful to me. And it took a lot of time, but Moses was God's chosen vessel all along to serve him. And part of that was because in Numbers 12, it tells us Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. It wasn't because of his great leadership skills. It wasn't because of his booming voice. I think God was waiting for all of Egypt, all of the pride, all of the superiority, the false education, all of that stuff to be emptied, then God could finally use him. Now, this is not really the focus of the message this morning, but I couldn't pass this up. If any of you in this room are approaching 80, I mean, technically I'm approaching 80, I'm just a few years away still. Think about this, 80 for Moses was a new beginning. He had a career change at 80. In matter of fact, at 80, it was Moses' culmination of all his training and all his preparation. It was the moment he was trained for. It didn't begin until he was 80. Any one of you here waiting for what God is going to do in your life? I talk to young adults. They're 20, 22, 25. When is God going to show me what I'm supposed to do in my life? Might not be till you're 80. <laughs> At 80, he was not being prepared for retirement. It was for his greatest task. If you're approaching 80, or retirement, or whatever you think is the end, don't start counting yourself out. It's not time to start preparing your memorial service. It's time to see what's next. You may be approaching the greatest task of your life, the greatest part of your service, your chief accomplishment. It may still be out there in front of you. I don't think it's ever appropriate for us to 
look forward and go, ah, my life's over. It's all over. Not true. Remember Caleb, the book uh, Joshua, chapter 14, verse 12. He says, give me that mountain, the one the giants live on, that no one could conquer. I'll take that one. He was 80. It came to pass, going on here, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, the son of Nun. He had no father. He was the son of Nun. Sorry, it's a, it's a dad joke. I couldn't pass it up. That was my one joke, so enjoy it. Of the tribe of Ephraim, he was first called Oshia, or Hoshia, Numbers 13, 16, which signifies saved or savior or salvation. But afterwards, Moses, guided, I'm sure, by a prophetic word, changed his name to Yehoshua or Joshua, which signifies God shall save or Jehovah shall save, referring, no doubt, to being God's instrument to lead them uh, from victory to victory as they go into Canaan. But the double meaning, the name, is not lost on us, is it? Because there's another Yehoshua who will come, Emmanuel, God with us. And he is God, and he is salvation. Joshua is called a servant of Moses, and he seems to have acted sometimes as his secretary, sometimes as a military aide or staff officer, sometimes as the general of the army. He was appointed to be Moses' successor way back in Exodus 17, verse 14. And under the instruction of his great leader, he was fully trained for the important role or position that he was to play. And he was a great and godly man, and God honored him. It appears he became attached to Moses shortly after Exodus from Egypt, and he was held by him in the highest esteem and commanded the army in the war with the Malachites. So remember back in Exodus 17, they have this battle, and whenever Moses' arms would weary and he would, they would fall, they would lose the battle, and so Moses and Ur would hold his hands up. But it was Joshua down in the valley leading the army. It says that he accompanied Moses to the mountain of God to receive the tablets of the law from God. There were highest honors that he could possibly receive during Moses' life. He was one of the two spies who came with a good report, Caleb and Joshua, the two that came back. The other spies focused on the obstacles, the giants. All this time, Joshua is being prepared. He's Moses' right-hand man to take over for him. He saw the ministry, he saw the service, he saw the heartache. He had been well trained in every facet of ministry and leadership. And I know at, at times when I first read this, I thought of him as being kind of a, a boy uh, and maybe inexperienced, but the reality is that's not the picture of who he is. He's probably 70 years old or so. He's an old man, lots of experience. But he's always been number two. He's been trained to lead, but he's never been the leader of the nation. 
And no matter how much preparation you can make, being number two is still different than being number one. And all the responsibility falling to you. And he's going to step into the shoes of one of the greatest men in history, certainly up until that time. Second only in stature maybe to Abraham, but Abraham didn't lead this many people. Moses is huge. Even today, people still obviously talk about Moses. Who, who, who in the world has not heard of the man Moses? Imagine for a moment what it would be like to follow in the shadow of this giant and stepping into his shoes, into his position. The criticism, the, the comments, the comparisons. I'm sure that all of you have heard the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, pastor of the New Park Street Church. It said that he had preached over 10 million people in his lifetime, over a 38-year ministry. His preaching was so powerful and his ministry so effective that at the ripe old age of 22, they had to move out of their building. He was regularly preaching to 10,000 people at a time without a microphone. Everybody remembers Spurgeon. Who followed him? Vince Lombardi, considered one of the greatest coaches in history, put the Green Bay Packers on the map. Who followed him? See, there's an inherent difficulty taking over from someone who is that famous, that well-known, that special. The vacuum left by their absence can be profound. It sucks all the air out of the room. You're a nice guy, Joshua, but you're not Moses. But God has called him to lead. He's prepared him. And when God calls, he equips. Joshua's in a difficult spot for another reason. You see, Moses had just died, and they mourned for him for 30 days. And now they have to go in and conquer. They have to go to war. And the attitude of the people is still in mourning. So verse 2 God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses, my servant, is dead. Sometimes in order for God, for us to trust God completely, we have to suffer loss. We have to recognize something is no longer there. Something is gone. We need to move on. The people look to Moses, all the miracles, the blessings, the great deliverer, the plagues, the, the staff, the parting of the Red Sea, the communion with God, water from a rock, manna, Victory over the Malachites, all these things credited to Moses. But in reality, it was God who did all those things. God had to get Moses out of the picture as well. There's a famous story, a concert violinist, and the violinist owned a Stradivarius violin. And a Stradivarius, I'm, I'm a musician, my you know, background is in music, so I've always had a special place for uh, music and musicians. But the Stradivarius is a very special instrument, and they're made by the Stradivari and his family, Antonio Stradivari, in the 17th and, and uh, 18th centuries. And the sound they produced has been unduplicated. Something special about the way he made violins that has not been duplicated to this day. And there's this famous violinist who had a Stradivarius violin, and he would play concerts. People from come from miles around, and they would hear the master play, and they would cheer the master. He would hold up the Stradivari, and they would cheer, clap their hands, and cry out. 
And at some point, the cheers for the Stradivari overshadowed the cheers for the musician, the master. One night, he concluded his concert, held up the Stradivari, and the cheers filled the hall, and they took the violin, and he crashed it over the seat next to him. He threw it on the ground. There it laid in a pile of strings and, and broken wood. The shock of the audience stunned Everyone sat in, in confused silence and cries of horror. And the audience watches on in shock. The master walks up behind stage, pulls out a case, pulls out the violin, holds up the Stradivari, and announces to the audience, this is the Stradivari. You see, the violin, as incredible as it was, was just a piece of wood until the master played on it. A Stradivarius is a wonderful, priceless instrument, but it doesn't do anything on its own. In order for people to trust the Lord, Moses had to be taken out of the picture. And the people would realize that God was with them all along. Nothing had changed. God had not left his people. We must always be on guard to give credit to men that belongs to God. What did Moses do that did not come from the hand of God? Now, I don't mean to diminish Moses in any way. He's still a great man. But the Lord did all of it. And that applies to bosses, to leaders, presidents, pastors. We can be thankful and, and support or share our appreciation for faithful servants, obedient and faithful leaders, uh, people who exercise care in their service and their authority over us. That's wonderful. But it's always the Lord behind that deserves the credit. Going on. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, all you you and all the people, to the land which I'm giving them to the children of Israel. They're about to embark on a journey. God is preparing them. God is preparing him to take this journey. There are steps of preparation. The first one is to recognize that the past is behind. Moses is dead. That phase is over. We need to move forward. The past is preparation but the journey is forward. We need to move forward. Any work of God, anything that we can do for God requires us to act. We must get up, we must rise, we must go. We can't just sit and reminisce and think about the things that God has done for us in the past. You know, one of the challenges that, um, when Pastor Will came is he said, what's the Lord doing in your life today? Not last week, not last year, not last 20 years ago. What's the Lord doing in your life today? And I'd ask you, what's the Lord doing in your life today? We should be moving forward. Now, God has given the land to them. So he goes on, verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Notice that it's past tense. God has already given it to them. It's theirs. 
But he says, every place you put the sole of your foot. They had to walk it out. And there are sometimes, uh, there are some times in our life that is what is happening. We live our lives as Christians, and we have the promises of God, the things that God has promised to us. But you must keep in mind there's a difference between just believing God has done something for you and acting upon what you think God has done for you. It's more than just knowing. We must possess the promises. You say that you believe in God. Of course, the demons believe in in God. What do you do? Now, we know our works don't save us. We're saved by grace. It's a gift of God. We don't do anything to earn it. But if you're a believer today, your life should be changed. Something should be different about you. What has your belief in God made you do, forced you to do, moved you to do? Do you really believe? What do you really believe? There are those in the church who struggle with the idea of free will, how God can be sovereign, yet man can have responsibility. God has clearly given them this land as a gift, but the Jews clearly have something to do to receive it. It doesn't diminish the gift that God has given them in any way. It's theirs. They still have to step out in faith. And the Jews never possessed the whole land that God gave them. They never actually received all that God had promised them. Every place, verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said, to Moses. Verse 4, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the great Euphrates, the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. They never possessed it all. What does God have for us that we have not received? What are the promises that he's given to us as Christians that maybe we haven't stepped out in faith to possess? Every place your foot shall tread. The older generation that left Egypt was left to wander in the wilderness. They all died except for Caleb and Joshua because the others doubted God. They missed the promised land. They had this gift, and they doubted God, and they did not receive the promise. And there may be some people here this morning that God has made a promise to you, a free gift. His son paid the price for all your sin. And you look at that gift, and you leave it on the shelf, and you say, yeah, it's out there. That's for me. That's someday... It's like the gift under the Christmas tree that nobody opens. Do you leave a gift under the tree, not opened? I hope not. Somebody packaged that thing for you. But unless we receive that gift, unless we ask, unless we rest our weight, put our foot, as it were, on that gift, then it's still sitting there on the shelf. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's interesting, thinking of Joseph, 
how he had followed Moses. Exodus 33, verse 11 says, So when the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Joshua stayed there. He did not depart from the tabernacle. He, he lingered there. He hung out with Moses at the tabernacle. And I wonder if, if he overheard God speak to Moses. I wonder if he envied or hoped someday that God would love him enough to speak to him the way God loved Moses and spoke to Moses. Have you ever wondered if God loved you? Have you ever wondered if there are people that God loves more than you? Or have you ever had that thought? I don't know if Mike Avil is here. I used to go pray with Mike because I figured Mike, you know, God loved Mike and I, he would hear my prayers if I prayed with Mike. Surely God loved Moses more than me. And I think of all the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints and the great men of God all through the ages. But reading the book of Acts in chapter 10, God shows no partiality. In James chapter 2, we read that God is not a respecter of persons. And here in Joshua, we read, God say, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus has told us that. He will not leave us nor forsake us. You realize that God will not love you any more or less than he does right now. Part of our measure of love is based on performance. It's not a good idea, it's just human nature. It's based on performance. How much we do for someone, how much they do for us. You know, sort of a reciprocal transactional thing, I don't know. But God already knows everything that you have done will do. The stuff that will surprise us, the failures we have in the future, God already knows them. And he sent his son to die for your sin, my sin, knowing that. You can't surprise God. I mean, we wake up, shamefully, I've done something horrible, and I think how horrible that was, and, and how it, it trips me up and stumbles me and makes me feel horrible. And God in heaven is saying, well, yeah, I knew that back when I created you. Not a surprise. Get up, repent, move forward. If we are able to understand that, it gives us great assurance, great boldness, great encouragement, thankfulness, real understanding of love and appreciation. And the truth is, is he does love you that much. Verse 6. Now, he goes on, more instructions for Joshua. Be strong and of good courage, for to you this people you shall divide as an inheritance of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong. Be strong. He says that three times. Now, you don't say be strong to the guy who's already strong. That should be self-evident. You say that to the weak. If I were going to step into the boxing ring with Alexander Usyk, I had to look up his name. I don't follow boxing. He's the current world champion. I'd, you wouldn't go to his corner and say, Alexander, why are you fighting Tom. Be courageous. <laughs> Pastor Tom is going to destroy you. Eh, not going to happen. You'd say, Tom,
mom, why are you stepping into the ring with this guy? What are you doing? You have a death wish? Be courageous. He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous because Joshua may have doubts. I think Joshua did have fear. Fear is not a sin. But it causes us to fall short, to make bad decisions, to sin. It prevents a lot of good. Fear of rejection causes us to not share the gospel with friends and family. We're afraid of how people will react. We hesitate taking steps of faith that we believe the Lord is leading us in or standing boldly or with some personal conviction because of fear. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Again, be strong. Second time. That you. Notice he's saying be strong so that you will do something. You will do all the law, not part of the law. When opposition comes against you, when fear grips you, be strong, follow my word. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, that you may prosper. The right or the left. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The enemy from the outside is never going to win. The enemy cannot prevail against the church. It's a promise from Jesus, the creator of the universe. I think it stands. The only weakness the church has is from the inside. I heard a pastor describe this, the right and the left. He calls it backsliding and frontsliding. Backsliding is falling into the temptation to sin, and frontsliding is falling toward the temptation of legalism. First, there's the right, the enemy from the right. We call maybe the, the fundamentalist, the legalist. I don't know. There's lots of terms out there. I don't know if I ascribe to any of them anymore. But this is the person that stands in the Bible. They debate the Bible. They argue the Bible. They say all the right things, keep all the rules. They look on the outside like they're righteous, but there's something hard inside. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside but full of dead men's bones, zombies. They looked good, said all the right things, but they had hardened hearts. And, and God promised to take this heart of stone and turn into a heart of flesh. They didn't have that. The Lord has to do a major work in us. So we have to be careful not just to follow rules for the sake of following rules. We need to do things because the Lord is showing us, revealing us in Scripture that we need to do something and then we step out in faith and we do it. Trusting in the Holy Spirit to fill us fresh, overflowing into the lives of others. Not worried about upholding a set of external rules, but changing the heart. The other danger is the left, if we will, to socialize, to water down the word, to weaken the word, to be an activist, a social justice warrior, fighting battles, but in the wrong war. Virtue signaling. Making sure that the right people see our actions, but the motives are insincere or just wrong. Did you see me do that? We can get to the place where we don't believe the word of God anymore. We weaken it. We endorse what the Bible clearly calls sin. That is the danger of the left. God wants us to believe all of the Word of God and act on it. 
to trust it. And wherever God's word tells us to put our foot, put it there. Don't be fearful of the weak. Don't listen to bad counsel. Don't ignore the truth of God's word. We are doing things for the approval of others. We're not doing things because God has told them to do us. Then we're in the wrong place. Don't turn to the right or left that you may prosper. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. So it says, you shall not depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night, that you may know it, that you may act on it, all of it. Verse 9, have I not commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord, the God, is with you wherever you go. And again, God reminds him and commands him to be strong. Anyone can quit. It takes no courage to give up on your marriage, give up on your children, give up your faith, give up on your job, your church, give up on the Lord. That doesn't take any courage. It's not courageous to quit over challenges or obstacles as they come your way. The children of Israel did not receive the promises of God. They quit on God. They didn't trust Him. All that He had done for them. They saw the giants and they feared the giants more than the Lord. And I think God is telling me, and maybe some of you, He has more for us than than we have received as of yet. We may not receive it if we're afraid or dismayed or discouraged or quit. And God is saying to you, be strong. I am with you, just as I was with Moses, just as I was with Joshua. And he's saying to you as well, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is his promise to us. He is with us, and in our journey ahead, he will be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. So as I bring this thing into land, let me make a few points here. I believe that until the Lord takes us home, which may be sooner than later, the world is going to get more harsh, more challenging, more sinful, more anti-Christian, more evil. We can become ineffective in our witness uh, by losing our focus. We can become distracted. We can become discouraged. We can become fearful. These warnings were given to the Israelites, given to Joshua. They also apply to us as he began his journey into taking over the land of the Canaanites, the promised land, as we look into this new year, as we begin this journey together. Now, we can look at the end of the book of Joshua and see how that all turned out for the Israelites. And like last year, we can look over the last year and see how that turned out for us. But we're on the edge of a new year. We don't know. The Israelites didn't know what's going to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen this year. We can look back on our successes and our failures from last year, but that year is over. I'm thinking of the Lord saying, no, that year is dead. That's gone. Moses is dead. Don't look back. 
All the successes and failures are already recorded. So, we need to look to our past and remember it's done. Moses is dead. Our old life is dead. The last year is done. Failures and successes are in the past. Maybe we can learn something from them, but we're not to worship them. We're not to, to obsess over them. Don't them any greater standing than they need. Our vision is forward. You know, it's interesting. My son-in-law, Eric, who's getting ordained next service, has a hat he likes to wear, and it's called Into the Storm. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, when I first saw it, I remember looking up on the Internet, of course, the source of all wisdom, and it compares cattle to bison. Cattle turn away from storms. As a matter of fact, they will run from storms. Because of that, they spend more time in the storm as it passes over them, and their survival rates are lower. Bison see storms and run into them. Now, they're built in the front to survive the storm head on. And because they go through the storm, they are generally in the storm for a shorter period of time, which is interesting. But I see in Ephesians chapter 6 an interesting comparison. The armor we wear is designed to go forward. If you're running from battle, there's nothing to protect you. We're designed to go into the storm, to face the storm, to go through the trial. Live forward, not backward. Second, do not stray from God's Word. This includes commands, scriptures, understanding the Bible, maintaining a reading plan, studying. If I have a regret from this last year, it's that I didn't spend enough time in the Word as I would have liked to. Something that I will be changing. Third, remember that God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We will never be alone. The problems we face, the challenges that come this year, they are there to help us, to grow us, they were prepared ahead of time for us and were to face them, but to remember that the Lord is with us through all of them. And fourth, do not be afraid. Be courageous. We are beginning a journey. This is the beginning of the new year, and we must go forward through it. Challenges we face, the trials we encounter, these are all unknowns. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions. I've broken more than I have kept. I say every year I'm going to lose weight. I lo every year I lose at least 50 pounds. Problem is I find 50. <laughs> but we have these instructions given to Joshua by God to prepare us to embark on this journey. And we can use them to embark on ours as Joshua did on his. So keep in mind as we go forward, we have God's forgiveness for our past. We have God's word for our present. We have God's promises for our future. And we have God's presence through the journey. Let's press on. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us these Old Testament stories. They're true and they're real. And yet they're also a type and a shadow and a foreshadow and a picture of things to come and that we can glean from them and learn and grow. And we pray for your blessings on this. I don't know where any in this, anyone in this room stands with you or where they, what trials they face. I don't know the trials that I'm going to face, but I know through all of them you'll be with me. I can always lean on you. 
I pray for your blessings on us as we go forward. I pray that you would bless this church, bless the Christians here. Help us to be bold, to not fear, to stand strong, to trust in your word and your promises, to walk them out. Pray for your blessings on everyone in this room, everyone listening or hearing online. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.